You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 23rd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The UN General Assembly prepares to vote against Russia again, but why are some countries still having trouble picking a side? The African tour of US First Lady Jill Biden. How much diplomatic clout should any political spouse have? And together at last, coffee and olive oil. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Rebecca Tinsley and Anna Rosenberg will discuss all the day's big stories and the latest episode of this week's series on Ukraine one year on looks at what the country will need once out the other side of this. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Rebecca Tinsley, journalist and founder of Network for Africa, and by Anna Rosenberg, head of geopolitics at Amundi Asset Management, Europe's largest asset manager. Um, Anna and Rebecca, hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Um, Anna, in common with several of our guests this week, you spent last weekend, and indeed in common with the presenter of this program amid the astonishing circus of the Munich Security Conference, uh, have you recovered yet? No. <laughs> Do you feel like you will ever? Maybe after this weekend, but it very much depends on how the Chinese peace deal looks like tomorrow. Uh, we will be talking about Ukraine-related matters shortly, so save your thoughts on that for then. But f- for you, what was good about Munich? Well, I was lucky enough to listen to three Nobel Prize uh, winners for peace and that puts things in perspective. That's not a bad weekend's work right there. Um, Correct. Which, which three was that? So the most impactful was the former Colombian um, president, Santos, who mm-hmm. ended a 52-year-long uh, war in Colombia. And I was just mentioning that to listen to him is really humbling. And he said things like, um, I learned uh, the generosity of humankind from victims And I also asked him for his view on the solution to the Russia-Ukraine war. And he said that I'm afraid the solution will look like one that no side will be happy with. Uh, President Santos, a repeat guest on Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk, and our episode on Saturday will contain the first fruits of our own labours at Munich. Uh, Rebecca, you have very much not been at the Munich Security Conference. I'm doing my best not to feel um, intimidated as I sit here with the global elite. (laughs) No, I was walking on the North Yorkshire Moors, um, which is a place I've been going to for the past 35 years. Um, It is very beautiful. It is completely undiscovered by Londoners. Well, you've Um, ruined that now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what's baffling is that in the 35 years I've been going there to walk, fewer and fewer people bother to go for a walk. It is pretty much deserted, which which is a mystery to me because there are beautiful villages with lovely old-fashioned pubs and the best fish and chips you are likely to eat in Great Britain. So there you go. I've uh, got a weekend plan. Well, yeah, you're giving you're giving me ideas, certainly. But just for the benefit of our listeners who may now be thinking they fancy a bit of that, where, where's a good place to start? Uh, well, um, the moors are sort of, um, if you go to York and then north, mm-hmm. they're between the sort of outskirts of York stretching up 
basically to Teesside. And it's a big area, and it's beautiful. And, and York a, itself is delightful. A gorgeous, gorgeous city, but it is vastly over overrun with tourists. It is <laughs> it is a bit unpleasant actually, but it is it is uh, it is gorgeous. Even in February. Yeah, uh, year round. It didn't used to be, but year round. But you know the the Minster itself. It's worth the trip. It is one of the finest buildings in in. Europe. Indeed so. Well, uh, we will move along to Ukraine and it will be one year tomorrow that Russia launched its full-scale invasion. Russia has waged its war in the face of widespread condemnation. UN General Assembly Resolution ES-11-1 condemned the invasion last March and the subsequent UNGA resolution deplored Russia's annexations of four Ukrainian oblasts. Both passed by hefty majorities, the only countries voting with Russia, Belarus, Syria and Eritrea and North Korea, the company one keeps, etc. The UNGA is preparing to vote again, demanding Russia knock it off. But as before, what will be interesting is not so much who takes Russia's side, because it'll be the usual suspects, as who makes a point of taking nobodies. Um, Anna, first of all, UNGA resolutions are not nothing, but they are not actually binding as such. Is, Is Russia going to pay any more attention to this than it did to the last two? No. This is a a week of heavy symbolism, and this is another one. But it's important symbolism. Um, To those abstentions and abstentions, uh, Rebecca, it was 40-odd countries on both occasions, mostly from what is now thought of as the global south, a lot of them from Africa, where you have worked extensively. Why would they be having difficulty picking a side here? Well, first of all, um, we're talking about the, the African elite, um, who are going to be persuaded by the Chinese. Let's be honest, it's the Chinese running around the UN um, persuading people to, to abstain. It's the African elite who will have, uh, in, in, uh, who are enjoying the opportunity to stick it to the man. Um, there are the, the memories of colonialism and the fact that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that the Soviet Union was ostensibly on their side. Uh, so there is the Cold War solidarity. There are enough people around who remember when people like Mrs. Thatcher called Mandela a terrorist. But we should always distinguish between uh, African elite and African citizens who, I have to say, the majority of the ones I know regard the Chinese as the new colonialists, and and they actually hate the Chinese, and they see that the Chinese are bribing the the leaders of their countries in one way or other, uh, and ordinary people aren't benefiting from uh, China's diplomacy through through loans and uh, projects on the continent. So, you know, when we talk about these countries, we're talking about their leaders being persuaded. Uh, to abstain rather than the people who themselves, uh, who in my experience, uh, are appalled by what Russia's doing. I would like to add something here. I think from a geopolitical perspective um, and from a strategic perspective, it's difficult for a lot of countries to take one side. And it's also not in their strategic interest to do so. So if you look at India, if you look at South Africa, um, it's it's difficult because, for example, in the case of India, India had a very strong relationship with Russia. Mm-hmm. It has a, a difficult relationship with China, siding with the US and with the West on Ukraine would really make it much more difficult for India vis-a-vis China. So they have to maintain a strategic 
ambiguity. They have to maintain neutrality. And similar issues apply to South Africa. So I think we're now in a reality in which a lot of countries try to um, forge spontaneous partnerships and they try not to burn other bridges. And this is why we're having some countries abstain and not siding with one side or the other, because they're maximizing their leverage. Just to follow that up quickly, Anna, you, you are quite right, obviously, that China is enormously influential here and that a, a lot of people are orienting their responses around how they interact with China. But when you look at China itself, uh, which has abstained also on, on almost all of this, do you think China's patience with Russia's um, adventure in Ukraine is limitless? It's not like China doesn't have considerable interests in Ukraine of its own. No, I don't think it's limitless. I, I don't think that uh, China uh, supported this war. It is not in China's strategic interest for this war to continue. It is also not in China's strategic interest for Russia to lose. Um, we will have to see what emerges from this um, proposed peace deal tomorrow coming out of China. Uh, you know, that Wang Yi during the security conference mentioned that they are drawing up some plans. They have been largely dismissed so far in the West as being too pro-Russian, but I do think it is too early to say that for a variety of reasons. Um, firstly, because the fact that Wang Yi was now in Moscow and seemingly supported Russia gives him now leverage to actually demand some concessions mm. from Russia. So I think we should be open-minded and see what uh, the Chinese put on the table tomorrow. Uh, and Rebecca, final quick thought on this, because it was a recurring theme, at least of the conversations that we from the Foreign Desk had with various prime ministers and foreign ministers at the Munich Security Conference. They all recognise that there is a reluctance among what we think of as the global south to fall in behind the West where Ukraine is concerned. A, a lot of them spoke of, uh, in, in quite you know, self-recriminating tones about how we haven't really done enough to make our case. Maybe we're not doing enough full stop. And especially off the record, um, representatives of countries which have an imperial history did say, yeah, this is a difficult case for us to make because the water battery that comes back is, and, 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 and as at least one of them said, is completely unarguable. What am I supposed to say to that? So is there a way that the West can go about making the case? Or should this be a wake-up call for what we think of as the West to make a point of being a better friend than Russia or China is ever going to be? Well, yeah, and, and this is the whole thing, is that at, at the end of the Cold War, um, an awful lot of the global North was withdrawing from the global mm. South. Uh, and and that seemed very um what's what's the word I'm, i mean just transactional really that that you know we'd messed around with these countries because they said they were on our side uh against the soviet union then we kind of drop them um we don't sustain our interest uh, with the exception of france of course which continued and does continue to rip off um several <laughs> several countries in the global south um for its own bizarre reasons to do with its inferiority complex. Um, but uh, we haven't really done a very good job. Uh, I don't think we've even attempted to, but we withdrew from an awful lot of these countries. And they were perplexed that we had withdrawn. Um, and it was stupid. You know, the idea of cutting your aid budget, cutting the BBC World Service, what an incredibly stupid thing to do. Uh, if you're trying to have any influence whatsoever, it, it's cheap 
at the at the price. It has it's the best form of soft power, uh, and you know I have to add that the 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 butt thing, uh, the hypocrisy. Um, we do have a problem in that there we are saying we believe in the sovereignty of nations, but that didn't stop us, the UK and the US, overthrowing Mossadegh in. Iran mm-hmm. in 1953. The Guatemalans, the Chilean government, all democratically elected, didn't stop us invading um, Iraq, Afghanistan, or the Vietnam War. And so we, we really need to do an awful lot of work, and therefore cutting our aid budget is really a short-sighted way of going around trying to persuade people. You know, it, it's all very nice sending Anthony Blinken around seeing people, and he is doing a good job. I mean, it's great after the Trump years to have him going and talking to, to people because it is a breath of fresh air for them. But we have to understand that we need sustained engagement. Well, we will have more from both of you shortly, but it's time now for today's instalment of this week's series looking at Ukraine one year on. And perhaps one of the most pressing questions for Ukrainian leaders and the international community will be how to rebuild the country as civilians try to re-establish their lives. So what kind of support exactly does Ukraine need and how much is this going to cost? In this episode of the series, Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov sat down with Chief Economist Beata Yav- from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Petri began by asking about the key challenges that Ukraine faces as it sets out to rebuild its war-ravaged infrastructure and its economy. There are three preconditions or three necessary ingredients for a successful reconstruction of Ukraine. The first one is stable peace, stable resolution to the conflict. The second one is institutional improvement in Ukraine. And the third one is money. The third one is the easiest to resolve because the international community stands ready to support Ukraine. I'm also optimistic about the second ingredient, institutions, because the prospect of EU accession provides an opportunity for Ukraine to get on this reform path and improve the quality of its governance. So the most challenging ingredient is finding a stable solution to the conflict. If we look at the work that the bank that you represent does, give us a picture of how you support Ukrainian businesses and the authorities and help the business community in the country to thrive. At the moment, we are focusing on supporting Ukraine here and now on helping the country make it through the winter. We help to keep lights on, to keep heating on, to keep trains running. We support international trade transactions, so imports of vital parts and components, pharmaceuticals. We also provide emergency liquidity to firms. And our loan Energo, the state energy company, finances emergency repairs that are absolutely necessary for the functioning of the country. And in this way, we are directly contributing to the reconstruction effort, because if we help to make conditions as bearable as possible for the Ukrainian population, we are going to avoid another wave of refugees. And that's going to position Ukraine 
better for reconstruction because the loss of human capital will be smaller because skills and people will be in the country when the time for reconstruction comes. What are the key post-war priorities for Ukraine in order to attract foreign investment and to help generate economic growth? Ukraine has a lot of going for it. It's a large country on the European doorstep. It has educated workforce. It is going to be inevitably a very attractive market for foreign direct investment. What it's lacking is institutions. The prospect of EU accession offers an opportunity for the country to embark on an ambitious reform path. Typically, it's very difficult for elected politicians to focus on long-term goal simply because their terms are short. What the EU accession offers is the need to answer only one question. Do you want to become part of the EU? And once the society makes that decision, the path is set because what needs to be done is prescribed by the EU. So it cuts out all these discussions. It cuts out the possibility of populist interests derailing the reform process. And we have seen how well the accession worked in the context of the Eastern European member states. And because now millions of Ukrainians have seen firsthand how much better countries like Poland function, how they have achieved prosperity over the last 30 years, they've seen the proof that the process works. Do you have some kind of an estimate as to how much funds Ukraine will need to rebuild? The World Bank did a detailed calculation last summer, and according to their estimate, Ukraine needed $350 billion dollars last summer. Now, since then, we've seen more destruction. It's a huge figure, and I think it is very clear that international community, multilateral development banks, bilateral aid is not going to be enough. We are going to need private sector participation. And here, the EBRD can play an important role in mobilizing private investment in Ukraine. We have been active in Ukraine for three decades. We have been the largest institutional investor there. We've had offices in several places with more than 100 team members on the ground. So we stand ready to do it. And the way we can do it is by investing jointly with private investors from Western countries. Our participation gives them comfort we do very strict due diligence. We serve as a seal of approval, as a signal that a country is open for business. When you look at Ukraine um, and the country's economy, what have you identified as the key growth sectors with most potential in the country? Ukraine has potential in several areas. It is a country with a lot of fertile land. It is a breadbasket of Europe, so certainly uh, agriculture and agro-processing are an obvious area for Ukraine to grow. The second area is manufacturing. We are witnessing now the process of reshaping of global value chains. 
as firms are interested in diversifying their supply base. And this process has only started now. And it's going to take a while for firms to find additional suppliers. European firms will be looking for suppliers in the European neighborhood. So Ukraine can have the potential to become a manufacturing workshop of Europe. And then there are services. Ukraine has a very sophisticated IT sector, and there are prospects for further exports of services. After all, we've seen big changes in how people work. We've moved to a hybrid work, to remote work. And that means that firms are no longer constrained by having workers in their offices, in their city, or even in their own country. So the differentials in wages between emerging Europe and Western Europe offer big opportunities for trade, for gains, and potentially Ukrainian workers could be working remotely from Ukraine while only occasionally visiting their employers in foreign countries. That was Petri Burtsov speaking to Bayati Yavorshik from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Um, and first of all, it's, it's, it's hard to know where to start with the undertaking that awaits, even if this war was to end tomorrow. The reconstruction that will be necessary, entire cities we're talking about, will be astonishing. What does Ukraine most need, though, other than lots and lots of money? Well, I think they need someone to take the risk which is a problem for the private sector participation. And I think the EBRD there um, recognizes this obviously very clearly because a private sector investor, especially one bound by ESG rules, right, um, mm. is, is not going to go in exposing themselves to this very high level of risk that is associated with investing in Ukraine and high potential losses. So if the EBRD and other similar institutions can, can provide some insurance and some level of uh, confidence that they will take the risk, then I do think this would unlock private sector investment. So that would be the first thing. Um, secondly, uh, as, uh, as uh, we just heard, one very important other aspect is for Ukraine to have clear milestones, how to make itself investable. Right now, the, it's not just, you know, politicians being determined by short-term goals. It's also that uh, Ukraine had to provide and has very clear milestones on how to become a and EU member states. It needs to follow similar clear milestones to attract this level of, of foreign investment. But I don't think they have those or at this moment in time. So I would think these are the most urgent things that would need to be addressed. And then you would have um, private investment flow in. Uh, there's another aspect to the reconstruction, uh, Rebecca. It strikes me that I think your work in Africa might inform in, in some way, which is have we learnt or are we learning anything in recent years about how to deal with the enormously widespread psychological impacts of being at war and at, and being on the receiving end of this particular kind of war, a, a war obviously of attempted conquest, and, and I don't think, given the way that Russia has behaved, it's that much of a reach to call it, in some respect, a war of attempted genocide. It certainly is. Uh, and what um, my, my uh, NGO Network for Africa works in post-conflict countries mm. dealing with exactly this. What I have learned over the years is that people, in order to move on 
and reconstruct their lives. They need justice. So I think what would be really important would be for the international community to establish swiftly a justice mechanism that allows people to tell their story, a truth commission. Um, the, the trouble is the track record on this is awful. If you look at Cambodia, mm -hmm. which happened decades ago, we're still just now getting judgments. Rwanda, it's taken decades. This isn't good enough. People need justice and they need to be able to tell their story um, also, not just pinning the blame on junior officers, which is often what happens. That's not satisfactory. The other thing that's necessary, if you think about Ukraine, there are going to be millions of people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And it is simplistic to think that once the fighting stops, once the bombs stop dropping, that people are going to get over it. They're not. Not this generation, not even maybe the next. What we have certainly learned in Rwanda is that this is intergenerational. It is that trauma is actually inherited. It is going to require a massive effort to deal with people's post-traumatic stress disorder. There are going to be millions of people reliving the horror all the time. They will be literally blocked from learning or, you know, learning a new skill, going to school, uh, fulfilling their job. They will be blocked until they can learn how to deal with those flashbacks. And that really does require us to take this very seriously, the mental health of an entire country. There will be children born of rape. That is another issue that you get time and again in these situations. And there will be, bizarrely, there will be stigma attaching to the Ukrainians who stayed as opposed to the diaspora who, who left and will come back. And may, you may find that they then try and run things. And, you know, that is the pattern that happens in all of these situations. It's those who, those who scarpered and cleared off and got on with their lives, you know, in Germany, Poland or Britain, are in a good position to come back and run things. But, you know, and that will, you will, you will end up with two different classes of people. Uh, so we, we really need to be conscious that justice and psychotherapy are going to be essential to rebuild this country. Well, let's now return to the world of diplomacy. And there has been a great deal of coverage this week of the peregrinations of US President Joe Biden as he sought to keep attention focused on Ukraine ahead of tomorrow's anniversary of Russia's invasion of it. However, while Biden has been embodying the hard power of the commander-in-chief, US First Lady Jill Biden has been deploying the softer power usually associated with her role. She is on a trip to Namibia and Kenya, where her official itinerary includes engagements associated with youth, empowerment of women, and tackling gender-based violence. Um, and Rebecca, first of all, I'm wondering if this does tie in a little bit to what we were talking about at the top of the show about that outreach to the global south. Uh, Kenya has voted with everybody else, or with most of the world, regarding Russia and Ukraine. Um, Namibia is a repeat abstainer. Do, do we suspect that Jill Biden might have been gently having a word about this? Possibly, um, but I, I, I'm sure that it's more subtle than that. Um, but I'm, I would hope I, so. <laughs> I, I really do think that it is. Uh, we we underestimate the power. I, I think back uh, the power of of visits by um, first ladies. I think back to Jacqueline Kennedy visiting France at a time when things were a little a little bit prickly, uh, and she managed to charm 
Charles de Gaulle, um, which was, you know, quite an achievement, actually. And she's, she wasn't the first. Um, there have been a lot of very powerful first ladies, like Eleanor Roosevelt, like um, Edith Wilson, who actually was running the White House once Woodrow Wilson had a stroke. Um, Nancy Reagan, who, who managed to, you know, whisper moderating things in Ronnie's ear when he had other sort of sinister people like Ed Meese suggesting ghastly, ghastly bits of, you know, policy. So we may now um, term these people like Jill Biden as being a new breed of first lady like Michelle Obama, but actually first ladies uh, like Rosalind Carter, for instance, have been playing a massively important role, diplomatic role, um, for a very, very long time. Which does prompt the question, Anna, is is it a bit weird that the First Lady of the United States, or potentially the first husband or first man, or whatever they decided they were going to call Bill Clinton, is it weird that the spouse of the US president does have such a role? If it was announced here in the United Kingdom that Akshata Murthy was being sent abroad on some sort of semi-diplomatic mission, this is the, the wife of the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, people would think that was mad. No, I think it's uh, it's important. As I said, this is the week of symbolisms, right? Mm. And um, certainly one vibe that I got in Munich is that a lot of the people in from the global south feel neglected right now. And especially as Russia is increasing its influence in Central Africa. I have a Google alert, Lavrov and Africa, and I get a lot <laughs> of Google alerts. And um, I, I must say that, that these things are important and, you know, they, they show um, countries that you know, the U.S. still cares. And as a result, it's it's loaded with symbolism. But what should be the parameters of the role generally? Not just diplomatically. There was... It was a... It wasn't entirely her fault. It was a corner she ended up being painted into. But when Hillary Clinton was made very much a part of her husband's administration, there was a lot of resentment of that that wasn't necessarily attached to the quality of the work she was doing. There was a lot of people going, well, we didn't elect you. Yeah, and that's that's inevitable. But if I could just go back to what you were saying, um, what I find is even more powerful, certainly in the global south, is if you send your king or queen. That really, <laughs> that really works. Because they get a huge, much more respect than some politician's wife. Well, that, that that option is not available to the United States, of course. <laughs> they they had a whole revolution about that. But but is it possible to overstep the mark in that in that role? And not just for first ladies of the United States or first gentlemen of the United States in the event that we ever have one, but for the political spouse generally. It's a weird role. Uh, it, it, I think it must be a horrible role, actually. I think, you know, people like Michelle Obama, quite um, if you read her uh, autobiography, she it's no wonder she didn't want to stand for president herself. I mean, it's an awful, you're under a microscope, you're judged for absolutely everything. And yet, you know, she was a fantastic ambassador for America, as well as being a wonderful role model uh, for young women all over the world. Hey, Michelle Obama aside, and those others mentioned aside, can, can we think of others, not necessarily American first ladies, who've been notably good? And, and you're right, it's an awful job to have to have. Uh, but has anybody else managed to make something of it that we can think of? I can just think of the absence of uh, Angela Merkel's husband. He has been certainly been more in the shadows than um, very visible. Yeah, he, he had a very clearly defined idea of the role. As I just what I honestly I don't think I'd know him if I ran into him in the street. 
which is remarkable no. given that he spent a long time being married to somebody who was for a long time one of the most famous people on earth. That's Absolutely. kind of impressive in itself. Yes, I agree. I mean, what do you think, Rebecca? Is that a model to which more political spouses should aspire? No, I, I really wouldn't be critical of them. I mean, a modern politician probably marries somebody who is also pretty political and pretty mm. bl- pretty bright, you know, and and always have. You know, Jacqueline Kennedy was not a moron. Um, obviously, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was an extraordinary woman. They are political partnerships, and we we need to relax a bit about this. Well, we're going to move along finally to a perhaps less likely partnership uh, because we have proof where it needed that we have not, as a species, yet run out of ways to overthink coffee. A well-known American coffee leviathan, who I shall not name directly due to suspicion that they may just be seeking attention, but yes, it's exactly the one you're thinking of, has announced a new range of beverages infused with olive oil. Though olive oil-infused coffee sounds like it makes as much sense as tuna-infused ice cream, the proprietor's declare themselves, at least, agog with excitement. Um, Anna, are you excited by the idea of consuming olive oil-infused coffee, whatever the hell that even is? Well, to be honest, I'm probably not as sceptical as you may think. I am sceptical of, 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 you know, the coffee that we get from this particular chain that you're <laughs> referencing. But I am not sceptical as a person towards the idea of using olive oil to get the, the taste out of certain things. So, for example, I've recently had, um, you know, I'm half Spanish. I like my tortilla de patata, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the potato. I don't know how I to mean, translate I'm not, it. I mean, I'm not even half Spanish and I enjoy those. Yes, but that one, um, you know, drizzled with a bit of olive oil goes another level with a bit of honey or you go and you have um, some chocolate with a bit of olive oil brings out a whole completely new flavor there. So I am not opposed to trying that. Okay. But I'm not so sure it's going to go down very well in Italy. Well, we will come to that, but we have some cautious optimism there, Rebecca. Uh, It says here, olive oil latte steamed with oat milk. Right. Well, I am reminded of something that Evelyn Waugh said, which is that I will try everything once (laughs) except folk dancing and incest. And I would add to that these, these, you know, beverage crimes, these culinary atrocities. Um, Of course, people deserve choice. But I've got to say, you know, if if there are these innovative minds out there thinking of things like this, what I know this sounds sanctimonious, but what a shame they couldn't put their minds to finding a cure for malaria instead. Well, you don't know. Perhaps olive oil-infused coffee will be what finally cracks it. It would keep the mosquitoes off, I'd have thought. Um, Anna, is it a bold move wheeling this out for the first time in Italy? Absolutely. Very bold. (laughs) And by bold, I mean insane. We will see. Um, I, I, I can really imagine. I can't, I can't really imagine this going very well, but we will see. Maybe they are unlocking something in Italians that no one else has ever you know, seen there. So let's watch the space, I think. It has been a particular source of bafflement to me that this particular enterprise has flourished in Italy at all, though, because it's it's not like the Italians don't know their way around a cup of coffee. So is it is it just tourists, do you think, who are drinking this stuff in Italy? Is it the same people who go to Italy of all places and eat in McDonald's? It must be. I mean, why would any self-respecting Italian go into that particular um, emporia? I mean, it's, but it is, is this not just a, another sort of indication 
that this is the fall of the Roman Empire, that we have such jaded palates that we, <laughs> we desperately need new, tantalising, ridiculous tastes. Uh, do, do either of you want to confess finally to any weird coffee habits? Are either of you adherents of that? I forget the name of the bean. It's incredibly expensive, but the selling point is that it has literally passed through a civet cat uh, prior to being ground up. This is a thing. I'm not making it up. No, I don't think we can afford to be particularly peckish about coffee these days. One espresso in London, £3.50. In Italy, I was in Milan recently, 80 pence. They're doing something right. Uh, Anna Rosenberg and Rebecca Tinsley, thank you both very much for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Daily. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamantou and our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. 